Can you believe Christmas is two weeks away? I don't know about you, it's, it's definitely snuck up on me, and I've, I've heard a number of times other people are in sort of the same situation where it's snuck up on them as well. And so there's definitely lots of planning going on. There's, I imagine there's lots of events happening. We had our staff potluck Christmas party last night, and one of the people at that was mentioning that this was their second of three events they had to go to in the next week. It, it, it's just that season of a lot of events going on. And I just want to quickly add my voice to encouraging you to invite your friends, neighbor, co-workers uh, to our Christmas Eve service. There is no lack of invitations, and so you have some in your worship guide there, but also if you head out to the uh, connection kiosk following the service, you can drop those slips if you're a visitor with us. You can drop those in the boxes there as well, and you can pick up some more invitations. And don't forget on Friday, we have that, that children's pageant happening as well, and we invite you to consider coming out for that too. And we thank the kids for their little taste of their work that'll be presented on Friday night as they sang that song for us, which not only introduced us to what they're going to be doing on Friday, but it also introduced the tune of the week for us. That song, Away in a Manger. Now, chances are good that you are familiar with that song. If you grew up in the church, there's also a good chance that that song, along with a song like uh, Jesus Loves Me, is perhaps some of the first songs that you ever sang as a child in church. And it's very familiar to a lot of people, but like a lot of the songs that we're focusing upon during the Christmas season, it's, there's a bit of mystery that enshrouds its history. Where did the song come from? It's very common to us today, but, but what are its roots and its origins? Well, this particular song, Away in a Manger, was in some places it has a different title. In some places it has the title of Luther's Cradle Hymn. If everyone's ever heard that before. But that ties back to a story attached to the song that Martin Luther, the, the father of the Reformation from hundreds of years ago, is the one who wrote the song. And he wrote it for the purpose of singing it to his kids at night. And, and then as the song became popular, other German mothers from centuries ago would, would sing it to their children, and it just sort of grew in infamy from there. Now, that's a nice story, but it's actually a legend. That's not actually where the song came from. The song actually first appeared in a book by the title of Little Children's Book for Schools and Families, which was Sunday School Curriculum from 1885, produced by the Lutheran Church of North America. Now, while the song does have German Lutheran roots, it was published in Philadelphia. So it's actually from, from North America. <laughs> and, uh, and it first showed up in that book, and then later on in the early 1900s, a Methodist minister by the name of John McFarlane added the final stanza that we find in that song. Now, this song is common to children's plays. It's common in churches. But in reality, the lyrics, some of the lyrics of the song are actually considered controversial, and they're, they're disputed a little bit, which is why you actually won't find this song in a lot of church hymnals. If you open up your church hymnal, you may not find a way in a manger in a lot of church hymnals because some of the lyrics are, are considered unscriptural. For example, the line that says, The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, I'm not exactly sure what lowing is, and I don't even know how cattle do it, but that's not the part of that line we're going to focus upon today. So you can look that up later. What we're actually going to focus on today is the part that comes after that. The part comes after that, which is a little tougher to get our heads around. And before I go any further, I, I want to just warn you at the start of this message here today that even though this song we're focusing on with, with cattle lowing and, and children singing it at pageants and parents singing it to their kids, even though it's a cute, simple little song, the words we're going to focus upon today, I, 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 hope, I hope they push you. 
I hope they challenge you a little bit. Because while this may be one of the cuter songs we're going to focus on over the four-week series of Advent, this could very well be one of the most challenging and one of the most important messages we have throughout this series. Because in that line, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Focusing upon the words closer to the end, when we understand what they mean, it actually starts to feel like maybe a bit of a mismatch. It starts to feel like maybe those words are a little too heavy for a cute Christmas carol. Because today I invite you to consider the words, three words, that show up five times in this little song. And I invite you to ask yourself the question, when we consider the words, little Lord Jesus, what does it mean to say, Jesus is Lord? What does that mean? What does it mean if you were to say to yourself, Jesus is my Lord? Now, five times this comes up in this short little song. Little Lord Jesus, he laid down his sweet head. Little Lord Jesus, he was asleep on the hay, no crying he makes. The the words we find elsewhere in the song really aren't much help for us to understand. What does it mean, Jesus is Lord? Because most of the song focuses upon Jesus as this content little baby, which causes a challenge for us because Jesus did not stay a baby. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And while he went through all the human stuff of being a baby and he went through all the human stuff of growing up, when we look at his life, when we look at his teachings and the sacrifice that he made, we come to see that he was much more than just a little baby. He is the one that the angel would speak of when the angels broke the silence of that night sky and proclaimed to the shepherds, we bring you good news of great joy that is for all people. Because today, in the city of David, a Savior is born. And that Savior is Christ the Lord. And you will find the baby in a manger. And so while Jesus was Lord at thy birth, there's other passages in the Bible that reveal to us more of what that actually means. And the significance of those words. In fact, if we look up that word in the New Testament, do you know how many times the word Lord shows up in the New Testament? Over 740 times we find that word in the New Testament. And almost universally, when we see the word Lord in the New Testament, it's a Greek word. It's a Greek word that is pronounced kurios. Kurios. Which means master. It refers to one who has possessing power. One who has the ability to make decisions. One who has authority over another. It refers to a person who is in a position of having control and has a right to make decisions. And I bet you can guess, of the 740 plus times it shows up in the New Testament, I bet you can guess who that word typically points towards as having authority. It points to Jesus as one that has authority. And so what we're talking about today falls under what is actually a very unpopular but extremely pivotal and vital topic for us as we long and strive to be followers of Jesus Christ. It falls under that heading, you may have heard of this word, the word lordship. Lordship meaning that we accept that another, in this case Jesus, we accept that another has the right to exercise authority over us. We accept the fact that another has control. But if you are anything like me, 
You like to be in control, not to have another exercise control over you. And you know what? That's not uncommon to me. It's not uncommon to you because it's part of all of us to a degree, and the world has caught on, and the world actually panders to this quite often. If you think about it when you go buy something, if you go buy a car, if you buy a computer, even, even a sofa. When I was in Bible school, I worked for a company that, that sold sofas, amongst many, many other things. And when you go buy one, you can buy the floor model if you want to. But almost every time that I sold a sofa, they wouldn't buy the one off the floor. Why? Because of the options and the features. They wanted to pick the material. They wanted to pick the color. You can even pick the custom height of the sofa based upon how long your legs are. There's lots of options that exist. Our TVs at home, I have 350 channels. And what do they say? What's the running joke? And there's nothing on, right? In, in my truck, I have my Sirius XM radio. I have 175 channels. Now, I can find something on that. I do have my favorites on that one. But I have my program favorites because the ones that I like to go to. Even our restaurants, our fast food joints. Do you remember what Burger King's logo or their slogan was for 40 years? You can have it your way was their slogan for over 40 years. They just changed it a short time ago, but for four decades, that was the slogan they had. And we like all these things because they give us variety. They give us options, but we also like them because it puts us in a seat of control. It puts us in a place where we call the shots. We get to make the decisions. But if we take that principle and apply it back to our initial question, what does it mean for Jesus to be in control? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord of my life? We have to wrestle with that a bit. What does that mean when I'm at work? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord when I fill in my sales order at work? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord when I complete my timesheet, when I interact with my coworkers? What does it mean for Jesus to have authority when I do my monthly budget? When I decide where I'm going to spend the money he's gifted me, am I going to consider my needs? Am I going to look to the needs of others? And what about this whole thing of, of tithing? That's just crazy. Giving some of my hard-earned money to the church? What about stress? What does it mean Jesus is Lord when we get stressed out? Are we free to do whatever we feel like? Whatever we think feels good will relieve the stress as long as nobody knows? What does it mean for Jesus to be in control? For Jesus to be the Lord of our lives? Well, Jesus taught on this. He spoke upon this issue a couple places, but one we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 6. If you haven't turned there in your Bibles yet or on your phones, I invite you to do so. Turn today, it's near the end of Luke chapter 6, where Jesus teaches on this. And this is in a section of Scripture that parallels uh, Matthew's telling of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. This is a similar passage, and Luke shares a lot of the same teachings here, one of which is upon this topic of lordship. See, it's at a point in Jesus' life when he had been ministering for a little while now, and, and he was starting to grow in fame and infamy, and the crowds were getting much, much larger. People from all around the area had come to hear him teach. Some had come just, just hoping that, that he would heal them of the various illnesses that they had. And as these crowds were following him, there's this one point where he, he found a level place on which to stand, and he turned around and surveyed this, this massive crowd that was before him. There, there were some people there who were just curious. They weren't quite sure what this was, but Jesus was becoming a spectacle, so they thought, we'll go check out this guy. 
there are some who are starting to follow, starting to, to, to hear what he was talking about, to see what he was doing, and they were falling in line with him. And there are others in the massive crowd who were committed disciples. And he turns around, he looks at this, this variety of people standing before him, and he begins to teach them. He teaches them on things like character. He talks to them about having love for all people, for, for loving your enemies. He talks to them about, about not judging one another. We find that famous teaching in there about, but why do you point out the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own? He teaches them things like this, including lordship and authority. And we pick up this at the very end of his teaching, actually, after he has taught all of these subjects and topics in verse 46 of Luke 6. As he starts to wrap up his sermon, he says to the crowd, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? but you don't do what I say. He says, how can you use that word Lord? How can you look at me and use the word Lord, which is a word that says you are giving me authority? It's a word that says, I will follow you, and yet you don't follow through. He's looking at the crowd saying, it's inconsistent, folks. When we talk one way and walk another, it's confusing to those who are watching. But it's also harmful and detrimental to ourselves personally. And then to further illustrate this point that he makes in verse 46, he goes on to draw out the implications of what it looks like to follow and not follow. Starting with a person who, who would have heard and would have put these words into practice. He says, that man, in, in verse 48, he says, that man, he's like one who built a house. But as he built that house, he dug down deep and he laid a foundation upon rock. And when the floods came, when the winds blew, When the torrent struck that house, it could not be shaken because it was well built. But then there's the other guy. There's the other guy who hears the words of Jesus. He's even in relationship with Jesus. We could say that in some of these cases, he even believes that Jesus is who he claims to be. And yet when he hears the words, he, he doesn't put them into practice. He says, that man, that man built a house as well. But when he built his house, he built it on the ground without a foundation. And the moment that torrent struck that house, when the winds blew, when the storms came, it collapsed. And its destruction was complete. Now in both of these examples, we see that both men acknowledged that Jesus had the right to be called Lord, Lord. Both of these men had a relationship with him. Both of these men heard the words of truth. Both of these men constructed houses, which is symbolic of lives for themselves. They they had built a life upon which they were going to live in and try and live out. And both of them experienced testings through the storms of life. But where was the difference? The difference was found in the foundation. One of those homes, one of those lives, was built upon the rock of truth. That builder had, had heard the words. He had put them into practice. He had had heard the teachings. He had followed the examples and tried to emulate that. The other man who had tried to build his home, his life, to the best of his own ability, but he did not heed the wise counsel of the master builder. Now, in the time that I have left here today, I want to briefly talk about these men in terms of two levels of surrender to lordship. Two levels of surrender to lordship to Jesus. The first man... This is the man who who knew Jesus, 
He, he called him Lord. That, that opening sentence and that opening verse in verse 46 is, is applicable to both of these guys. It's the fork in the road, if you will, where one goes one way, one goes the other, but both of them start at the same point. This man called Jesus Lord, but when Jesus surveys his life, he says it's basically lip service. You're paying me lip service because you don't put my words into practice. And we can refer to this guy as symbolic of what we can talk about as a partially surrendered life, which is very common in our world today. And and I'm fearful at times that it becomes common within our churches as well. This is what we could refer to, or you may have heard phrases like the casual Christian. Somebody who has good morals, they, they attend service regularly, they're part of the events. They volunteer within the church. They maintain good, healthy relationships. All wonderful things. But when, when their faith starts to cost them something, when, when the words that they read in Scripture make them uncomfortable, when standing up for what they see Jesus has said we should stand up for might make them unpopular, they start to check out. They start to back away and fade out. And I think sometimes when we think about these people... They, they, they have a view of Jesus still as that eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus who's lying in a manger. It's a partially surrendered life. And I, and I think at times, it can look a little something like this. It's your time of the year, Jesus! Wow, thanks, guys. But this is a little weird. Weird? What do you mean? We do this every year. Yes, but I haven't seen you all year. Well, now's your time to shine, Jesus. Yeah, you put the Christ in Christmas. Well, yeah, you're the reason for the season. Yes, but I don't want to be the reason for just this season. I want to be with you in every season of your life. Oh, that is so sweet, Jesus. Thank you for being born. You're such a cute little baby. Oh, wait. Okay, but I'm not a baby anymore. And I'm not in a manger. Okay, I'm in a manger. But it's more than that. I want a relationship with you every day. Well, Jesus, you have Easter to look forward to. Yeah, and technically a day around the flagpole of prayer, right? Oh, and Thanksgiving, kind of yours too. Yeah, but I want more than just the holidays, guys. I want an everyday relationship with you. Jesus, you are in my life every day. I mean, I've got a cross on my wall and a fish on my car. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, we know you're here all year long. If you know I'm here all year long, why do you keep treating me like I'm not? Do you still have that plastic, Jesus? Jesus wants to have an everyday relationship with you. He wants that everyday relationship with you, not a seasonal one. Not a, when it's communion, like an everyday relationship with you. He wants to be the foundation upon which your life is built. That rock upon which you can stand. So that when the storms of life do come, and we know that they do come because we've experienced them, that when those storms do come, we will be able to endure. Not because we're built upon sand which washes away, but because we're built upon the solid rock. And I think we know this. I don't think I'm, I'm forging new territory here. I think we understand this principle. But I know it's hard to put into practice. It's a real struggle to do what Jesus says, what we read in Scripture. And if we stick back for a second and think about the things that we are willing to trust Him with, the things that we're not willing to trust Him with at times, it's interesting where those fall. And and I think there's actually three categories upon which these things can fall into. 
And, and here's the three categories I want to share with you. First of all, there's, there's kind of the low priority, kind of the low priority stuff, the stuff that doesn't really matter much beyond the moment. What I mean by this is if, you're, if you see that your gas light is on and you're about a kilometer from the gas station, you start praying. Oh, God, I hope I make it to the gas station. Right? Or if your team is in the playoffs and you're down by a goal, oh, Lord, we got to score that goal. Right? Like, like it's genuine in the moment, but, but after you get gas, after, after the game's over, it, it's kind of fleeting. It's really low on the priority list. But we do throw up, if we're honest, there's situations like that where we throw up little prayers. We throw up little things like that. But then there's the other end of the scale. There, there's the high end of the scale where we encounter things like, like salvation, right? Or, or near-death experiences. Or if you hit rock bottom in a relationship, a rock bottom because of depression, you know that you have no control over what's going on. You know that there is nothing within you that has any chance of fixing it. And so we turn to God. You've probably heard that saying before that comes from wartime. There are no atheists in foxholes. You heard that saying before? It's kind of that idea where, where I have to trust in God because there is nothing in me, nothing apart from God that can allow me to survive this. So you've got the low stuff. We've got the high stuff. And quite often we're okay giving those types of things to God. But what about that middle area? That middle area where, where things like, like our careers, our families, our finances, our, our futures, kind of where those things exist. That's where we stall out sometimes, I think. I know that's in my life anyways. That's where I start to stall out in, in trust and I start to cling back to control on some of those things. First of all, I, I think we do that because we believe that we know enough and we are strong enough to look after it on ourselves. But, but secondly, I think we cling to control in those areas as well because, well, it's on our mind all the time. It daily impacts our lives. And it's hard to take something that is so constantly present with us. It's hard to take something that is so constantly impactful upon us and open our grasp on it and trust another to look after those things. It's hard to do. But, but here's the curious thing about this scenario is that if we are willing to trust God with something like salvation, if he alone has the love and the will and the authority to make a way for us to enter into right standing with God, if he can look after something as incredible and eternal as that, does it not stand to reason that he just might be able, he just might have a plan that would affect our situations with our families, with our finances, with our futures. It can be fearful to hand over control, even to one that we call Lord. It can be fearful to hand over that control. I understand that. But I don't want you to believe the lie that our plan, our power, and our way is just as good as His. We've tried that. We know where it leads. Because when the storms come, we find that the foundation we constructed ourselves is not as strong as the one that Jesus offers to us. And when the wind blows, as Jesus said in that passage we're looking at today in Luke 6, that there, there is no foundation upon which the house is built, the house crumbles. Instead, however, the author of Proverbs tells us this in Proverbs 3, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. To lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways to acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. As you read that verse, 
as you reflect upon the words of the of that verse, I ask you to consider what area of your life are you currently leaning on your own understanding? What area have you perhaps not surrendered? What area of your life are you still trying to control, but you need to let go and allow Jesus to follow his way? Perhaps it's in a family situation where you are fearful of, of the choices that, that some of your family has recently made or there's some recent developments that, that cause anxiety for you. Those are very real things that we encounter in our lives. But at times we may try and control the situation. We may try and say, well, I will fix it. I will deal with it. I know the right way. Is there the possibility that we need to let go and allow Jesus' way to be what guides us? What about our futures? There's economic uncertainty in the region. There's, there's people who are heading into retirement. There's people who are in retirement, and, and, and it just looks different than they'd ever planned. There are people who are looking for a spouse or perhaps dating, the significant, uh, dating somebody who's not right for them. Hard choices to make. But is there opportunity where perhaps Jesus had words of wisdom into those situations as well? Uh, very often, whatever it is, we can feel like we're living that partially surrendered life rather than trusting in the Lord with all our hearts. So I offer that challenge to you today, to whatever that is that God may be impressing upon you, whatever situation you may find yourself in today, to ask that question honestly and openly. Am I doing this and clinging on to control? Or is there an option by which if I were to release control? It doesn't mean I become passive and disengaged. We still need to run the race. We still need to walk through the steps of our lives. But who is setting the course? Is there words of truth that Jesus wants to impress upon us, that he has shared with us in the scriptures, that would help us to find that truth? But let's not just stop there, because there's also another guy that Jesus spoke about. And there's another option for which we can go from that fork in the road. And this is what we could refer to, is if we were to do this, we could refer to this of that fully surrendered life. Now going back to the passage in Luke, there's this other man who is in relationship with Jesus. He hears the words of Jesus, and he put them into application. And Jesus says, that man, in verse 48, that man is like one who built a house, and he dug down deep, and he laid a foundation of rock. And then when the floods came, when the winds came, when the torrents came, that house could not be shaken because it was well built. This is the guy who understood that the building instructions that were given by Jesus were worth following. Now, that doesn't mean that in the moment when he received them, that in that moment he thought they were worth following. But when the storms came, when the end product was tested, they proved to be sure. Sometimes in the moment we don't always think the instructions were given are correct. And I'm going to guess there's two types of people here. There are people who follow the IKEA instructions, and there are people who don't follow the IKEA instructions. Right? There are some people here who will buy something from IKEA, and they will go home and they will try and build that item without reading the instructions. They will consider those instructions a lifeline, if you will. That only if they admit they're stuck will they then open them. Meanwhile, their wife, I'm categorizing these people as guys now. Meanwhile, the wife is like, honey, I have the instructions here. If you would just follow them. <laughs> now there's the other people who will, who will never attempt to build anything without reading the instructions completely. Even the French and the Spanish versions just in case there's some extra information in there that they might need in building that. There's two types of people. Well, actually, there's three, because I'm kind of in the middle. I'm the guy who will read the instructions while I'll scan the instructions and then cast them aside, because I've got this, 
right? <laughs> and so I feel confident. I've scanned enough of the instructions that I can now take back control of making those choices. And I have built lots of IKEA furniture in my lifetime. I've got a strong grasp of the basics. I can look at the parts, I can look at the pieces of wood, and I kind of have just a general idea right from square one how that's all going to fit together. And I feel very, very confident because I got this. And then you all know what happens, right? I start building, and it's going well. And in my self-confidence, things are coming together beautifully. It's starting to take shape. And I'm almost done. I only have a few pieces left. I got one board, and I've got two things that the Swedes call Lillibergschwitz for some reason, and whatever those are. And I get those together, and I'll be done. But wait, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. I can't get the Wingerschmidt into the Vandenholm, whatever those are. And so what do I do? I get angry at Ikea. This garbage that they built. This garbage that they created. But then I look at the instructions and I find out where the Wingerschmidt is supposed to go. Right? And I realize I had the wrong piece in the wrong order. The problem wasn't with Ikea. The problem was with me. I had the instruction manual the whole time. But I chose to try and do it on my own. But the manual was there the whole time. The same thing happens in our lives. We've been given the instruction manual. We have the Word of God. We have the revelation that He gave to us. We have the option to be in prayer. We have the option to learn from one another. We have all that we need right before us. And these things are not meant to steal our fun. They're not meant to be oppressive. These these guidelines and these rules and commandments are not meant to cause us undue hardship. And you know what? Even when we do follow them, we're not doing God any favors. We're actually doing ourselves a favor. Because God is the master builder who not only knows how the pieces best fit together, but according to Colossians 1 verse 16, not only is he the distributor of all good things, but he's also the designer and the manufacturer. Who better to take instructions from than the designer, the manufacturer, and the distributor of all good things that we have in our lives? And so if we're going to say the words, Lord, Lord, in effect, if we're going to say, Jesus, you are in control, you have authority in our lives, but then if we're not going to follow through on the actions, it's incongruent, and we will have a weak foundation. But everything we need, everything we need for a strong foundation has been given to us. Everything we need for a strong relationship with Jesus Christ has been given to us. And there is no more important relationship for us to invest in. What does that mean to invest in a relationship? Well, I'm not going to suggest to you that it's easy. But I'm also going to tell you it doesn't have to be complex. And I want to offer you a model here. Offer you a model to consider. This will be applicable to relationships in your lives as well. But it's also applicable to relationship with God. A model that you can follow. Consider this. It's a word picture. So if there's any mathletes... This is not a proper math equation. It's a word picture, okay? If we look at this, knowledge plus effort over time equals growth and depth of relationship, okay? Knowledge and effort over time creates depth and growth of relationship. What does that mean? Let me describe it to you this way. Think back to, if you're married, think back to when you first met your spouse, Or think of a good friend that you have when you first met that person. There is that moment where you encounter each other. And you start to get to know them a little bit. And interests start to build. You start to get a little more interested. 
And so you want to know more. You want to go deeper in that relationship. And so you start asking questions. You start inquiring. You look into things about their history. You learn about their passions. You, you talk to them and you hear about their dreams and their likes and their dislikes. This, this is the knowledge part. This is where we grow in knowledge of another person. When I first met Nadine, I, I learned that she was born in Calgary. She grew up in Regina. That one of her dreams was to become a doctor. That she loves French fries, but she hates cooked vegetables. And I was good enough to remind her that French fries are cooked vegetables. But I didn't bring that up. I learned about her. The same thing goes with God. As we read through Scripture, as we study what He's given us, as we, as we enter into communication through prayer, as we learn through our relationships being shared with other believers, we learn about Him. We grow in our knowledge of who God is. But if we want that to go somewhere, if we want the relationship to prosper and grow, we then take it a step further where we start to do the likes and not do the dislikes. We start to change the way that we live a little bit. You know, I learned through the process of, of talking and growing a relationship with Nadine, I learned that she doesn't like it when I wear jogging pants in public. So I don't do that anymore. <laughs> it's one of her little things. So I don't do that anymore. Now, I don't choose to stop doing things out of selfish motives or out of selfish gain. I do it because I care about her. I do it because I want our relationship to grow and develop. I choose to change some aspects of my thinking and behaviors to be in line with the relationship that I'm trying to nurture. So we have knowledge plus effort. And if we do this over time, we grow deeper in our relationships. We grow deeper in our commitments. This is just a simple little word picture of what it looks like to grow in relationship, and it applies to our relationship with God as well. and includes an aspect of surrendering to his lordship. And as one of your pastors, this is a topic that weighs heavy upon me. Because I want to spur you on to growth. I want to spur all of us on, myself included, Pastor Luke included. I want us to all grow deeper in our knowledge and our effort and our commitment to one another, absolutely, but especially to our relationship with God. And it's a critical issue. Because on another time that Jesus was teaching, he used a very similar phrasing as the one we saw in Luke 6, 46. That title, Lord, Lord. But he used it in another way that, that, that can put a bit of fear into us at times. When he said this, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that passage does not speak of just living a good life. It does not speak of just being a moral, kind person. But of being in that committed relationship one of which we have grown in our knowledge of God, one of which we have chosen to, to change our, our worldview and our attitudes and behaviors a little bit to be in line with his, that we do this over time. This isn't a foreign concept to us, this idea of relationships. When we hear about people who have been married for 40, 50, 60 years or more, we celebrate and congratulate them. But so too, we should be celebrating and congratulating those who have walked faithfully with the Lord for decades. So too, just as we want our marriages to last for 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years, we, we should want to put the same emphasis upon a relationship with the Lord, that it would last for decades, that we may walk faithfully with Him. And celebrate that. Eugene Peterson wrote a famous book. He talked about this idea of a long obedience in the same direction. 
to summarize the, the, the Christian walk, to summarize this, this spiritual formation that can happen within us, this long obedience in the same direction with God. And here's the deal. Jesus shed his blood and died for all of us. And at that time, it became an available free gift of eternal life that exists for everybody. And it is by his grace. It is by our faith placed in his grace that we are saved. It's not by our works. Because if it was from us, we would boast about it. We'd take credit for it. We would try and control that too. But it's a gift of God that he's given to you. Now, Jesus is dying upon the cross. That, that act that, that initiated the salvation available to all of us, that cost you nothing. But it cost Jesus everything. But here's the thing. While that cost you nothing, and it cost him everything, when you say yes to Jesus, when you accept and receive that free gift of salvation, at that moment, it cost you everything. Because at that moment, you no longer own the rights to your life. At that moment, you belong to him. You have surrendered your life under his lordship. And you are therefore no longer in control or the lord of your life. That's why that casual approach to Christianity causes tension within us. That's why a casual approach to Christianity creates struggles within us. Because if we've made that commitment, it's a very real, significant handing over of control. And when we live contrary to that, it leads to a dissonance within ourselves. Jesus is not just an eight-pound, six-ounce baby in a manger. You know, he's not even just the Lord Jesus dying upon a cross. No. He is the risen, victorious, conquering, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is worthy to surrender control of our lives to. So in conclusion today, I want to draw our attention back to that verse from Proverbs and, and highlight the call that it brings to us to seek God in all areas. Where the author of this verse says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never accepted that gift of love and forgiveness and salvation, that is the place to start. That is the first step of surrender that needs to happen to let go of that and allow that free gift of love and forgiveness to become yours. Now, it may seem like it's a, a long road to home. It's a long journey. And it is. The spiritual life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. But every marathon begins with one step. And that is the first step in that walk of that long obedience in the same direction. There are others here who have made that confession, have made that profession in the face. And I just want to ask you that one question. What is that one area of your life that you feel Jesus is trying to highlight, that, that God is saying, that's the area I need you to let go of? Whatever that one area is, to consider if you would allow that to happen. To allow to open your hands and begin to let go and let God in that particular area. And just see what happens. Just see if it is true that he is good, that he is faithful, and that he does want to help build that foundation of rock upon which when the winds come, your house will stand. That area in which it may be partially surrendered, but needs to be fully surrendered.
I'm going to close in prayer here. I'm going to pray for both of these situations. I'm going to pray for myself as well in this regard. I am not immune to any of this stuff. And pray that we would all, from wherever we find ourselves starting today, would continue this long obedience in the same direction, the following God. Heavenly Father, we begin with, with gratitude that you have made a way, that, that you know the way in any situation that we find ourselves in, Lord. God, if there are those who are here today who have not surrendered their hearts and their souls to you, those who have not accepted that gift of love that you freely offer, Lord, I pray, God, that your spirit would just impress upon them so deeply that that is the critical first step. That in that moment, a softening of heart happens. In that moment, the scales fall off our eyes and our ears and we begin to see and hear in different ways. The spirit that comes to dwell within us at that moment of confession wants to guide, wants to direct us in ways that lead not to perfect, happy days, Lord. There are still storms in this life, but leads us to a sense of peace and assurance because we are following the master builder. God, for those of us who are here today who have an area of control that we need to release, I pray, God, that that would just come very clearly upon our minds and upon our hearts. And that while we not, may not fully understand all the instructions that are in the manual right now, that we would understand the first one. And trust and have faith that you will guide us to the next one as we need it. And that we will follow you in that long obedience in the same direction. Investing in our knowledge and our effort over time. That we may grow deeper in our knowledge of you. We pray this in Jesus' name.